In this Easter season, we are looking at the last section of the Apostles' Creed, so the section that begins, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and we're going to take one line every week and kind of unpack what does it mean to believe in these things. We're saving, I believe in the Holy Spirit for Pentecost, so we're gonna start, uh, end with the start, and so we are beginning this morning with I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And to help us unpack that, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, the first 10 verses. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Good and gracious God, we thank you for your word. Your word that nourishes and sustains us, that comforts and that challenges us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. Not mine, not ours, but yours, for you alone are God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This is 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of grade nine, my class went on a three-day bike trip. We stayed in hotels at night. On the second night, I knew that most of my class of about 25 students was all gathered in one room, so I went to go and find them. But when I knocked on the door, the response I got was, sorry, this is for cool people only. That was the right response. (laughs) And they shut the door in my face. There were maybe six of us, who had not been considered cool enough to be in this hotel room. And like all super actually cool grade nine students in the early 2000s, we just went to the parking lot and played hacky sack. 
I found out the next week, when we were all back, that the group of girls who were the ring leaders of this movement had also put together a burn book, a book of gossip and mean things said about others in school straight out of the movie Mean Girls, which had come out the year before. That's not necessarily the movie that you want to emulate is one called Mean Girls, but they went for it. And of course, all of us who had been left out of the hotel room were in the book. Now, this was uncovered and dealt with by teachers pretty quickly, and bridges were repaired, and I am pleased to report that my high school career was a very happy one, and we all became the best of friends. But that experience of being on the other side of the door has stuck with me. It was not, as you can imagine, a good feeling. That feeling of being an outsider, of not being invited in. Fast forward to my freshman year at Calvin College when I decided to live on the honors floor. The new residence hall, Van Rieken, had three intentional living communities, and one of them, the honors floor, was comprised of individuals who were all in the honors program at Kelvin, and were all therefore quite dedicated to their studies. This meant that as a community, we were decently nerdy. Some definitely nerdier than others. None of us had been what you might call a cool kid in high school. We had our quirks, we had our passions, we spent more time at the library than at the gym. We were all over board games. We were, in fact, all pretty different from each other. And I would wager that many of us had been the odd one out a time or two. But on the honors floor, we had a home. We were a community of misfits, of outsiders, who had found this place to belong, built around our shared love of learning. The first 10 verses of 1 Peter 2 are about finding a home, about being invited in. These words from Peter would have had such power for the congregations he's writing to because they would have been outsiders. The churches in Asia Minor were made up predominantly of foreigners, aliens, the poor, the disenfranchised. And it's to them that Peter writes these glorious words about this new community that they, and therefore we, had been brought into. 1 Peter 2 is about the church, then and now. And this morning, as we look at what Peter says about being part of this community, I want to look at these 10 verses, but do so backwards, which will allow us to move from the outside in. So as we move through the text, we're going to ask three questions. What happened? How did it happen? And what does it mean? So we start with verses 9 and 10 to ask the question, what happened? Peter writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This 
Particularly the phrase royal priesthood would have landed on ancient ears differently than it does our own. Because we don't do a whole lot with the idea of lineage anymore, either by way of church leadership or national governance. I could become a pastor after getting a seminary degree, passing a whole heap ton of exams, and then being called to a church. In ancient Israel, the priests were the Levites, only the Levites, a clan, descendants of Levi, descendants of Aaron. They and they alone got to enter the Holy of Holies to experience the most intimate of relationships with God to come into his presence. And we don't do much with kings and queens anymore either. I mean, we're, we have a queen, kind of, sort of. <laughs> we're all pretty obsessed with Harry and Meghan. But in North America, we secure our leaders through election processes. The office of prime minister isn't just handed down from one generation to another. There's usually at least one other person in between those generations. But again, in Israel, royalty was passed down through the line of David. There was no way to become a king if you weren't in the lineage. If you weren't already on the inside, you would always be on the outside looking in. But now, now the people, all of the people, are a royal priesthood. Not even just one or the other. They are royal and they are priests. They have been brought inside, given access to God's presence, brought into intimate relationship with him. What happened? They who were no people are now the people of God. To answer the question of how this happened, we move backwards to verses 6 to 8, where Peter quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages that all talk about a cornerstone. Now, this may seem obvious to you, but a cornerstone is a stone that sits at the corner of a building which makes it really important. It has to be precisely 90 degrees. It has to be exact because the integrity of the building relies on this stone. And Peter's first reference about cornerstones comes from Isaiah 28, verse 16. This whole section of Isaiah deals with God making promises to the leaders of Israel, which is symbolized in him laying a stone in Zion, in Jerusalem, in the foundations of the city God has brought the people to and helped them to build. But those leaders rejected God and turned away from him and his promises. So Peter quotes two other passages, Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. There are those who reject the cornerstone and those who do not. Peter reads these texts Christologically. This cornerstone is Jesus. And in his quoting from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, he's saying that the the leaders of Israel, just like they rejected the God who laid a stone in Zion, they have now rejected Christ. And the quote from Isaiah indicates that now they will inevitably trip and stumble because he is the cornerstone whether they see it or not. 
But for those who believe, for those chosen by God to come to faith in Christ, he is the one who holds all things together. He is the one who brings people, all people, wealthy or poor, citizen or foreigner, black or white, short or tall, corner office holder or behind the scenes employee. He brings all people into the family of God, into the royal priesthood, into the church, and he holds them fast. Outsiders become insiders through Christ. He is the living stone. And as Pastor Tom said on a baptism Sunday, as these children of God go under the water and come up again, we are reminded that we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And so we too then are living stones. Which brings us to the third question. What does this mean? Peter answers this in verses one to five with two instructions. The first instruction comes immediately following chapter one, which ends with this declaration that we have been born anew by the living word of God. So Peter starts this chapter, this section, with a big therefore. Therefore, since you have been born anew by the living word, continue to long for that word. Let your desire be for the pure spiritual milk, for spiritual nourishment, for that which will fill you with a knowledge, a deep and abiding knowledge of God, of Christ, of the living stone. Let your lives be oriented, not by the desires you had before coming to know Christ, but by a desire to grow in faith and in love and in obedience. Because you've already seen, you've already tasted that the Lord is good. And so it is only natural then that you would long for him more and more. And as you orient your lives around this longing for spiritual nourishment, so that Christ, the living stone, is at the center of your life, we find unity and belonging with our brothers and sisters who draw near to the same center. And so Peter issues a second instruction that we ourselves would be living stones, offering our lives so that the Holy Spirit, by uniting us with Christ, would also unite us with each other so we might become a spiritual house. And this imagery of a spiritual house does a couple different things. First, it rejects the Judaic temple system. You know the old hymn, the church is not a building, the church is not a steeple, the church is not a resting place, the church is a people. Very good. The temple is no longer a building The temple is a people. The church is a people. God's presence is not confined to brick and mortar. God's presence is in his people, among his people. And second, a house is not just a collection of building materials. You can have all the doors and windows and beams and two-by-fours that you need, but if they're on the property in their own piles, that does not a house make. In order to build a house, all the materials rely on the other materials to fit well together so that each different piece becomes a part of the whole. 
Windows have to be snug in their casements. Beams have to be exactly the right length. The pitch of the roof has to be just right for the skylights to fit in. That's my dream for a house at any rate. And in the same way, those who are part of the spiritual house, the church, need every other part of that house. They rely on every other part of the church. We cannot be the church alone. So what does it mean to be the church? Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 54 sums it up when it answers the question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. We are the church because Christ, the cornerstone, the living stone, has made us to be the church. And so as the church, that truth allows us to be both bold and humble. Peter says that we have been made a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We do a lot of things as church. But I think first and foremost, the mission of the church is to proclaim. We are called to praise our God, to sing of his mighty acts, and to make known his deeds to all the people without fear of judgment or scorn for what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. For we are living stones and are in the living stone. We are in Christ Jesus. We may be rejected by the world as he was rejected by the world, but he who has overcome the world is our firm foundation. So we can be bold as a church. We can make our boast in Christ and Christ alone. But if we boast in Christ, then we as a church are also to be humble. Israel's problem when they had been called to be God's unique, set-apart people was that they wanted to stay that way. Exclusionary, special, the cool kids. Their insider status made them too big for their britches. And the church has a similarly bad track record when it comes to being the right kind of insider. Too often we shape our identity as a church around these outside factors, ethnicity or musical preferences or country or language or political leanings or that particular niche we fill in the neighborhood. And particularity isn't always bad. It can be helpful in developing a concrete vision in our specific context. But it can also distort our view of church and make us think that 
maybe we're doing church a little bit better than that congregation over there. Or that there's nothing to learn from other churches who do things differently than we do. Or it can make us believe that only a certain kind of person would do well in our particular church. Our house often has too many doors that only open from the inside and too often remain closed. Justin Ariel Bailey is a professor at Dort University and he wrote a great article last summer for the banner, thinking through the words insider and outsider. And he says, we all have experiences of being on the inside and outside that influence how we think about those terms. But he uses the words with what he calls a centered set approach to theology and Christian witness, which means that it's all oriented around the center rather than a bounded set approach, which is obsessed with boundaries and establishing who is in and who is out. Because it's not, he says, it's not about us keeping other people out. It's always about Christ inviting people in. A house built around Christ is a place of welcome and interrelatedness where differences still exist and are celebrated as we fit together, but where our ultimate identity comes from our shared foundation and our common mission is to proclaim the mighty acts of God and the good news of the gospel, a good news that is good news no matter our culture, our context, our country. To be an insider in the church, in the kingdom of God, is to want to bring others inside out of our own humbled astonishment that we have been invited in. And so our hope as the church is that through our proclamation of the good news, our invitation for people to come to Christ, the living stone, that outsiders will become insiders and the house will grow in numbers and grow in depth, fed by the pure spiritual milk of the knowledge of God. Bailey concludes his article with this. Concerning these travelers from the highways and hedges, the mission seems clear. To point them with trembling gestures in the direction of the feast. Because what we are really after is not a pronouncement of who is in and who is out, but a posture of humility and hope that only the gospel can bring a posture of standing on the inside with the door flung wide open as we share openly and joyfully that which we believe, the good news of the gospel. Would you pray with me? God who is three and one, we thank you for calling us each by name into this community, this family, this church. Thank you that in Christ we are new creations, that we have become a new people, your people. Help us to grow in faith 
and obedience and love so our lives and interactions with others might reflect our unity in you. You have given us life and joy and hope. Help us to bear witness to the life you give. Give us the courage and opportunity to share the good news of the gospel to those who cross our path. May we long to throw wide the doors, to welcome in the lost, the stranger, the other, the one who doesn't look like us or act like us or think like us. May we find our identity, our sense of self, as individuals and as the church in Christ and Christ alone. And may our whole lives be a testament to him, a spiritual sacrifice, that his light might shine through us. Help us profess this which we believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.